It's about freedom for life. What do you hope people will take away from our discussion on education today? Well, I hope people take away not just from this podcast, but from all the podcasts that we do in the future, is that the institutions that you are taught to believe in, a big one is school, education, but there's others like government, the police, et cetera, et cetera. They're not what they seem. And that you really need to do some homework, investigate, I mean, especially something like education. Um, This is something that you send your kids to. It was a mistake I made. I openly admit that all the time, that it's not what it seems. The whole education program is designed specifically to manipulate and indoctrinate your children. That It's as simple as that. Yeah, as, uh, as any institution we have... There is that ostensible reason, the said reason for existing, and then the true reason, which is uh, usually quite uncomfortable to uh, to start delving into and, and learning about. I hope that people take away from this that I hope that this helps people heal, uh, especially I found reading some of this stuff, especially uh, the John Gatto book that we'll talk about. What we, uh, we, we'll talk about two of his books today is... One of the the best ways I've found to heal from these things is to use the trivium to to gather the knowledge on on something to to go through the process of understanding understanding what you went through and then using uh, you know going through that process of wisdom of applying that knowledge to truly to truly heal. So I hope that one of the you know as you were saying of expanding and exposing and explaining what the educational system actually is and how it functions and what it does. Uh, but also helping people heal from that that went through it because, you know, there might be some some of those homeschooled people listening to something like this. But I also imagine most of the people we're talking to majority yes. went Overall. to public education. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the parents of those people went to public education. Um, we'll get into the history of it, but especially the modern form of compulsory schooling has been around for a long time and. We're at the point where generations have gone through it and it has evolved. It's evolved a little bit, but that and now you're seeing the outcome of all that. Yeah. All the indoctrination, you know, school shootings. Yeah. Uh, well, kids uh, not learning, kids not able to read or do basic math. I, mm-hmm. The outcomes are all there. So. Yeah. Let's uh, let's start by explaining what we're talking because there, there's going to be two things we're going to be talking about that are related, but they're different. And that's the modern form of compulsory schooling, which is the education system, especially in the United States. And then that versus the idea that we'll talk about of education, of, you know, idealistically of what education should truly be. So uh, do you want to give our definition for for what we have here for uh, the compulsory schooling aspect? Did we decide which def? There are a few definitions. No, for both of these, there, there's quite a few, actually, yeah. Because <laughs> the one I liked the most actually came from the two books I read for this podcast to get ready. was uh, One was John Taylor Gatto's The Underground History of American Education, and the other was The Dumbing Down of America by Charlotte Iserby. Both very good books, a lot of information we are just going to be glossing over and hitting highlights. There's no way we could possibly get through all of it. But the one definition he had that I particularly liked was 
education versus schooling. The former turns on independence, knowledge, ability, comprehension, and integrity. The latter upon obedience. And I think that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. And uh, it it trains that subservience. It trains uh, the, the docile mindset. It, it introduces you to authority. It it creates the certifications and licensings that all of our socioeconomic activity is, is, runs off of off of these certifications, these licensings, and yeah, you go through this this process of of state indoctrination, um, which is enforced by the state. If you need to go there, or there will be repercussions for doing it. And I, I, for me, with the compulsory schooling, a lot of it, I see it as as the obedience. That that's one of the biggest parts. Is you show up, do what you're told, and uh, just. Well, there's that reliance on the government too, because it takes you away from your parents at a very young age. So you're separated. I mean, you went to kindergarten at five. Your sister went to pre universal pre K, so she started at four, and that. They strip, you know, they intentionally make you depend on your teachers, the system, as opposed to your parents. And they're essentially telling you that what your parents believe or the values that they instilled in you aren't the correct values. And that's part of the whole compulsory education is they have taken the morality out of humanity, basically, because they tell you that. There is no real such thing as right or wrong, that basically everything is how you view it. Do you believe that's right? Do you believe that's wrong? Not that there is definitely right and that there is definitely a wrong way of doing yeah. things. Yeah, well, school doesn't even pretend to approach non-material things. School only touches upon the measurable things that you can divide and quantify the just the material plane it doesn't it doesn't ever transcend into like you're talking about of of ethics and morality and what is right or wrong i had a teacher literally say that to us that, that that's not for the school that's for your religion that's for your that's for your other institution this is the institution where we teach obedience you come in here and we give you our we give you the little facts and the little little compartments of information but we never tie it into a hole we never expand upon that into uh because as you're saying with something like morality the you know the uh, the facts of that are, are heavily associated with with what you form i'm struggling here no i understand what you're trying to say because you basically learn right or wrong from your parents and those around you your grandparents etc and those are unauthorized it's sources source. yes correct and they you know, I can tell you, yes, you know, killing somebody is wrong. And then you go to school and they're well, I guess in certain situations, you know, apparently, actually one example is they discuss, I can't remember which book it was, but apparently, and I'm trying to think if I ever was exposed to this in school. I don't know if you were, but it's the thing like, well, if you're on a boat with, you know, 10 people and you had to take, you know, somebody had to be killed to survive who would it be and that's an actual thing that they teach in school nobody because you shouldn't murder you shouldn't anybody murder, exactly two people everybody is you know but it's that 
type of morality that they teach you. And I think it's interesting when you said that about religion, because they've totally stripped religion from school. Like I, That was another example, I think it was in John Gatto's book, where a child can't, it was a, actually a Supreme Court case, I cannot remember the name of the case, but the, they lost because the child was reading a Bible in school on his own time. <laughs> and you can't do that. Well, they don't. They don't even want you to read a book. Uh, well, I I was an avid reader in in uh, elementary, middle school, but it quickly was was beaten out of me as I went up through high school, where you were <laughs> you were demonized if you were that kid who would get the work done in class quickly and sat there and read. Mm-hmm. It, it was disliked. Uh, you know, stay on topic, stay stay with what the class is doing. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's all right. So that. Compulsory schooling, that's the modern institution we're dealing with. Let's talk a little bit about what we would define as ideally a true education. What, what do you think is most important in, in that? Well, an education, everything is an education. From when you wake up in the morning, <laughs> you know, reading a book, going outside, looking at nature, Doing skills like cooking or gardening, that is education. Whatever you are taking in information, discerning it, and then being able to put use to it. To me, that's what education is. Even considering philosophy, you know, anything from philosophy to sciences to basic gardening or cooking Mm, or driving. All of life would be educational. Correct. Which is a big part of school, which is limiting you to the curriculum of school because all of the the economics of life after school are dependent solely upon the curriculum of school mm-hmm. and that basically makes all of all the other parts of reality unreal or uneducational or, or a waste of time because why bother with those things when you don't need to learn to cook all you need to do is go down to taco bell and support yep. the economy that way mm-hmm. or you don't need to know how to fix your own electrical outlet because you need to keep the electrician in business. And, you know, it's those types of things. For me, it is it involves the self. It involves equipping the self with the tools capable of dealing with anything in reality, mm-hmm. which is a big part of school, which is stripping you of that self-confidence and the ability to deal with any situation that comes your way. It is... uh you know, using the trivium, grammar, logic, rhetoric, and it's just meaning and purpose for yourself, uh, just valuable tools that you can take in. And then, as you're saying, throughout all of life, throughout all of reality, you are continuing to learn, you're continuing to grow, you're continuing to evolve. You should be anyways, yes. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people get stuck, which is another... Once you're out of school, oh, well, then you're just stuck and you don't ever grow from there, but... Uh, I read uh, a little bit of uh, Sister Miriam Joseph's The Trivium, and one of the things she says is education is the highest art, uh, highest of the arts because it is sculpting and putting ideas and ideals into the mind rather than on matter, which is what a lot of what we, we deal with uh, associates with matter over, over the mind and the spirit, which, I mean, forget about the spirit. We're not, you know, that's, <laughs> that's not mentioned at all. No. But uh, at least of the mind is, is what is uh is not even really sculpted in school it's more so just uh, well that was intentionally done that was the well we'll go into it the 
behavioral psychology that was discovered in the late 1800s is that's the whole premise is that a child is a blank slate and mm-hmm. that you can train the child to be the person you want it to be, not that the person is born into the world and is its own individual. The whole premise of our educational system is to create a person, not to To create enhance. the conformist, yes. yeah, not to be the, the true individual, which as we're as we were saying with true education it should be to empower the individual uh individual self to become all that it can be and that's one of the things gatto talks about a, a lot is being an individual and not a conformist and being able to deal with life as it comes at you and i i like how he just puts it as uh to teach you what is important how to live and how to die mm-hmm. that that's a, in my opinion a pretty good a pretty good aspect of it so you want to start off by, uh, we should delve in a little bit. Uh, we'll start with just a rough history of education broadly, which then kind of leads into compulsory schooling as we uh, are introduced to the industrialized societies. Uh, so where would you want to start with that, with the history of education? Um, well, there are many different histories of education. There's a lot of information, a lot, and I can briefly touch on what I came across. Um, A lot of people say it pretty much started in ancient Greece. That's where, quote unquote, Western civilization started. Um, I found it interesting is that I know when I was in school, you always learned about Athens and Sparta. Yeah. And everybody compares our democracy to Athens and so on and so forth. But Athens actually didn't have any real schools that... uh, their word for school was S-K-O-L-E, which actually means leisure. And that was, they would go around and just have conversations. And it wasn't until, well, actually, let me backtrack a little. It was actually the Greeks, and we had discussed this earlier, um, who had taken the Phoenician alphabet. Mm. And back before the Greeks, it was a site type thing. They basically used the language for trade and commerce. But it was the Greeks who actually gave the letters a sound and started phonetics. And um, up until actually the late 1800s, that's how people learned to read was phonetically. It wasn't by sight, which is how everybody's taught now how to read. And phonetics is the pronunciation. Learning how, yeah, there's 44, I could be wrong, um, in the English language, 44 distinct sounds. And you learn those distinct sounds, and that's how you read. And even like um, Gatto talks about it in his book, and the uh, around the revolutionary time in the United States, even pre-revolutionary time, the literacy rate was like almost 98%. Everybody could read. Didn't mm-hmm. matter if you were rich, poor, farmer, whatever. You could read because your parents taught you how to read. They sat down. You learned how to phonetically read. And, and it was a useful people, skill. It was you, a you skill. You benefited exactly. from it from everyday life. So that was the Greeks that did that. They actually put the sounds to the alphabet. Um. But the and now you don't learn phonetically. No, no, no. You, now you, you learn uh, sight. That's like here's a picture of a dog. Yes. Say the word dog. They started that. Well, that originally started in the late 1700s, but it really got its real push in the late 1800s when they finally pretty much turned everything over to that. And uh, but the thing about Athens is, of course, it was the free men who could had the leisure time to read. 
or talk or converse and educate themselves. Yeah, you had your needs met, so you had that time to to yes. advance yourself. But there were they considered they had slaves, and it was the slaves who were force trained, which I found was interesting. They you could slaves could not be free men because they had to be forced to train and to learn. They went through a form of schooling? No, saying? not really. You could, like well, maybe training. like, yeah, maybe compulsory education to the slaves, I guess. I don't know. That was the impression I got. And it wasn't really until Plato formed his first academy, who was a philosopher. I don't know how much Plato you know. Um, but his academy was basically, it was just a hangout for conversations. People would just go and they'd talk. That's where Socrates and Aristotle. Yeah, the dialogues. Yeah. yeah. And I, the other thing I found interesting is the counterpart to Sparta, or Athens was Sparta. And uh, Sparta was the complete opposite. They actually was the, I don't know how much you know about Sparta, but it was pretty much from birth you were controlled by the state. And it was all forced education. And that's actually the basis for the Prussian education system, which we'll get into was uh was Sparta. And so our education system is actually based on Sparta, even though everybody wants you to think that it was Athens because Yeah, out of the free people of Athens, yeah. Um then it transferred over into Imperial Rome and slash the Catholic Church is when they started forming some schools, but they were all for the rich, the elites. Uh I've an interesting word to know is pedagogue, which Pedagogy, for those of you who don't know, is actually the study of education. That's the term. Okay. And a pedagogue was actually a slave who was assigned to one of the boys and would walk them to the schoolmaster or the school. A lot of times they just went to a schoolmaster. They still didn't even have schools. And eventually the pedagogue would take on more responsibility and actually become part of help train the the boys and educate them, which I found interesting. Well, I've heard it. Uh, I've heard it a few times that one of the distinctions in Rome between being a citizen and a slave was the education you received. Mm-hmm. Was if you were equipped with the trivium, with with the ability to learn and to grow, versus uh, being left as a as an uneducated slave, mm-hmm. uh, which helps with the the docile and the servitude, you know, keeping a slave in line if they're not educated. Which will be the theme throughout this whole show because yep. that's, it just progressed. And then um, when the empire, Roman Empire fell, the Catholic Church kind of took over. And like I said, this is a real highlighted history, <laughs> not going into a whole lot. But they can, they created what were called cathedral schools. And... um they basically they would set aside some space in the cathedrals and they would bring in you know elites or they also brought in i know monks were because you had your scribes they were the ones who would copy the books before you know they had the printing press and all that and um pace from what i understand all of the schools in western europe pretty much derived from the cathedral schools the formation of them Religion was heavily, the church was heavily involved in schooling. Yes, which makes a lot of sense because the church also wanted to control the, the Catholic Church's this whole. Well, they also wanted to propagate institute. their book, and yes. you kind of need yep. people to be able to absorb that mm-hmm. to be able to propagate it. 
And then eventually they started creating intellectual centers that actually taught the trivium. And that's kind of when the Enlightenment came in. And the Enlightenment is pretty much when the first universities really showed up in Europe. And they were basically for philosophy and science, the teaching of philosophy and science. They were places where you could go and it's not like the university that you go to today, but that's a whole other that's a whole other show. What? The, the modern college? <laughs> yes, yeah, the modern college. And then for schooling really started in the U.S. pretty much, well, actually the first state was uh, Massachusetts. The They started the first Compulsory Education Act in 1852, and it was based on the Prussian education system. And the Prussian education system was... It was put into place, from what I understand, um, before Prussia, before Germany unified, there were a bunch of German states, and Prussia was the, by far the largest and most influential of them. And they lost a major battle, I believe, with Napoleon. I'm hoping my history is right on this. And the Prussians were like, oh, well, this cannot happen again, because the Germans have always been very industrial well, and very state-oriented. And... That that story go as they were too intelligent. Like they, they had too much individuality. A lot of the Prussian soldiers were not willing to just blindly follow their orders to death. You know, usually is how war ends for that. Honestly, I don't know. I, I know they That's were That's how disapp- I, I've heard it could, is. Yeah, is, it uh, could be perceived that way. I could easily see it perceived that way. Is um, we need to train good soldiers, and what do our what is a good soldier? They follow orders. They do what we tell them to do, and we need to teach that from a central position. We need to come up with a plan to do that. Basically, and the Prussian government by this time, uh, Hegel was on the scene, a philosopher who was uh, who really believed that the best society is a society that sacrifices for the state. Mm-hmm. You know, you can control people through the educational system. I'm losing my train of thought. Um, you need the educational system to train people to be good citizens is what I'm trying to say. And so Hegel was kind of the first real big push on that. And he had a lot to do with the creation of the Prussian education system. And so by the time Massachusetts was enacting this in 1852, there was a gentleman by the name of Horace Mann, who was a U.S. representative from Massachusetts, who had trained in Germany. Because by this time, a lot of of politicians, elitists, elites were going to Germany to be educated. Because at that point, Germany had the best universities. Yeah, you were saying a lot. A A lot were going to Germany. Yeah, by... Probably the early 1900s, most of the educators in the United States had trained in Germany. So mm. it's a huge Interesting. percentage. So Horseman is considered the father of education. He believed that you could turn children into disciplined Republican citizens, much like Hegel. He was on that. And it was also through Horseman where the whole teaching, whole words, and not phonetics really got the big push. Um, that's when the first primers started coming out, you know, dog. You see did, the picture uh, of the dog and you associate dog. You don't. Did any of the books you read talk about the purpose of that? Like what? What does that achieve? 
No. Not that I'm... I, From what I understand is they wanted to... At this point, we're talking about the Industrial Revolution is in full force now. So one of the primary goals of schooling at this, the big push wasn't in there yet, but they really wanted to make better workers. Smart enough to operate machines. Smart enough to operate machines, but not too smart that they're going to figure out, hey, you know, we're getting screwed here. We need to do something Mm. about it. And one of the primary things of Trivium is grammar. And when you take grammar away, you're taking a fundamental part of your learning process. That is how you form the thought, the symbols you use to form the thought before you express it and act upon it with rhetoric. Yes. And so you had that push going. And then I honestly, from the impression I got, is a lot of these philosophers and psychologists who were involved in the early stages really believed that children were not capable of learning as much as they are able to like they i it's like they dumbed them down but not intentionally which goes against thousands of years exactly. of kids uh, just growing up in society and being educated all the time through the culture of their elders and and of their other peers yeah so i think there was that element of it too um i i honestly can't tell you what their main motive well, it, it just was. the idea you know like rather than learning the phonetics of it, where for uh, one thing that's been really helping me with spelling and understanding words better is is looking into word etymology mm-hmm. and breaking down and seeing the roots of words and where words come from and really having a deeper understanding of the language that you're using. So that I just kind of naturally assume that's part of it is not a not taking that extra step to have a full understanding of that word you're using you just have a an association to that word that you're just shown in your head and regurgitate it whenever you whenever you need it i also think another element might be is during this time period well it was actually a little after this period um a couple things happened uh There was a large, the first major mass immigration to the United States occurred from your Eastern and Southern Europe. And a lot of those people did not speak English. Um, And I also think maybe that might be an element to it. It was easier to teach them by showing them pictures than to actually teach. That's my thought. Teaching a second language. Yes. So, because it was during that time they... Darwinism came in, which that's a whole thing in of itself. But there was actually a big push in the late 1800s to kind of segregate the immigration or the immigrants from the the pure Americans, the people who have been here all along, because they didn't want because a lot of the people who were coming in were Catholics. Mm-hmm. They were different looking. You know, they had dark hair, darker skin. They weren't protestant white american and like we had mentioned it was also during that time when they created all the elite academies there were 289 created during that period and they are all still in existence today yeah i knew nothing of this uh this protestant influence in in schooling like that which you were uh you were talking to me about uh was probably partly too 
to create that segregation, as you're saying, of, mm-hmm. of sticking with your own. And I didn't I didn't write it in my notes, but it was also the period where eugenics really started to come into play was ah, during Darwin. Yes. Which will be its own <laughs> episode in of itself. But this is all tying into that period of time. And you also have the creation of behavioral psychology during this time. It started in Germany and it the behavioral psychology is the premise that a child is a blank slate. And that it is your job, the the state or the educator's job to make a child a person, because when the person a child born, as you see a person being, because yes, that's exactly. a, like I don't disagree with the idea that children are adaptable and I don't I don't like the word blank like that, but they're they're not blank. they're they're ready they're ready to receive like yes. they are open they're open minded they're always asking what how teach me show me mm. explain that to me um <laughs> just that that evilness of oh yeah well we, yeah we can exploit that we can we can take advantage of that and use that to our own benefit well they actually like bf skinner actually believed that you there is no conscience there that you literally can be trained to be who you are he he was one of the people who well, think that was, consciousness is like an illusion. It yes, it doesn't. It's not real. He's a I believe it's pragmatism. Um, he and he's a little later on, but B. F. Skinner is his psychology psychological theories are what our education system is today. Behavioral psych, you know, the behavioral psychology. Is he the no, wait, never mind. He's not the dog guy. His no, his name is very familiar. Like I've heard his name a lot. I just I don't know much. He trained. I, don't know much uh, about I think him. it was pigeons to set off bombs. <laughs> You're thinking of Pavlov. Yeah, is yeah, the yeah, dog yeah. guy. But he he's along those same lines. That's all behavioral. You can psychology. train them how to act. Yeah, yes, through you know pleasure, punishment, rewards is basically. Yeah, it, which that's all compulsory schooling is based that's upon. Exactly yeah. what it is. And then I'm losing. Okay. And then in the early 1900s, the scientific management movement came into effect, which is it was backed by a lot of international bankers and industrialists. And this is where we see the Ford Foundation, the Carnegie Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, blah, blah, blah. Rockefeller actually created the General Education Board, which was an independent was an independent agency they actually got i believe they got federal money hmm. so it well those guys just cared about everybody they yeah. they, they they wanted to help <laughs> and spread some money around sure. and spread some education yeah they so, just care and love for everyone oh yes yes and i actually found this very interesting it was in 1907 um there was the creation of the gary plan it was by william wirt and i don't know if you're familiar with gary indiana no gary indiana is a company town do you know what the company towns are? They're town. You build up a town around some manufacturing process yes. you have going on. Yeah. There. Well, that's what Gary, Indiana was. And so in their schools, because it was a company um, town. Yeah, I was going to ask town. if you know what, do you know what the, what was their thing? You know, like, they create, he's the one who created uh, the classes being segregated, like moving from class to class, listening to the bell, changing your classes. Uh, that was the whole Gary plan man, that, screw that guy. implemented that whole program. And it, that basically was the foundation of how your schooling is done today, moving from class to class. 
getting rid of like gradually like kindergarten you have like 50% of your day reading but then by the time you're in high school it's down to like 20% and those gradual there the, is no cohesive connection yes, to anything I'm uh, trying to think I'm sorry the but. uh it sounds very similar to yeah what the modern school is especially with the with the bells and the moving from class to yes, class that was him <laughs> and it was to make you a better a better worker those the well, if you're working on the assembly line, that bell rings, you drop everything yes. and, and move on. And you know, of course, this is during uh, the period where you get all the grants from the Carnegie Foundation. What is they? Uh, all that stuff is still around. Well, oh, is yes. it the Carnegie? Is so like they do like yeah, Carnegie Foundation. Uh, is they still... do yearly reports, and yes. I I forget what I, I had just seen something. All three of them: the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller. They're all still ex- in existence today. The uh, Carnegie was the library guy, right? He did a lot of. He did a lot. Of, yes. Then he... one of them, like you were saying, made the University that of was Chicago. Rockefeller. Rockefeller, yeah, Rockefeller oh, actually. Funded the university because a, a lot of the guys uh, Gatto was talking about seemed to come out of of the Chicago University. Yes, and that was that is a Rockefeller creation. And when we get to it, he also created the medical school in Chicago, which is the basis for a lot of that. Um, then another important player. I'm not going to get too much into him because a lot. If you're really interested in this, I would definitely read these books and do your do your own research. You should always do your own research because I know I'm not always right on everything. Is John Dewey? Um, he was very influential in the philosophy of pragmatism and functional psychology. And then I guess in 1946, which I did not know this, but the U.S. actually joined UNESCO. Um, that's the United Nations Education Science Cultural. Oh, sounds fantastic. Or, yeah. Yes. And that was actually what got us into, that's pretty much when the whole new world order. The globalization nation, started. Uh, yes. And you then, were saying with, uh, with John Dewey there, that was when, uh, welfare started to be, the welfare system started to be tied into schooling. He, um, he created what was called the Progressive Education Association in 1919 and that would, it eventually ended, but the, be it was the beginning of getting, uh, the government involved in schooling, like uh, social work. Uh, I'm blinking. Well, I hadn't realized. Uh, I had read Ivan Illich's Deschooling Society, and he starts uh the book talking a lot about poverty, which, at first I was thrown off about, but then I was like, oh yeah, that's a big. Uh, argument for compul- mandated compulsory education is well it helps the poor kids it helps those mm-hmm. uh those impoverished yes, it helps those, them stay poor <laughs> it cre- yeah it uh it creates an equally poor class yes. so uh but yeah that's uh that's a weird mixture there of starting to add in that that state uh so-called you know caring aspect to uh what was uh was an education was supposedly supposed to be just an educational system it's slowly starting to become more and more of that synthetic family pulling the children away from the families. Well, yeah, it's because your kid is late to school. Oh, well, the parents must be bad. Oh, you know, the kid is sick and you're sending him to school. Well, the parents must be bad. It's Yeah, send the social worker, social worker over, there. over there and see what's going on. Um, 
Wow. And then uh, post-World War II was pretty much the system that you went to school and I went to school in is truly formed. Because at that point, after World War II, the U.S. became a mass production economy, which means we produce more goods than necessary. And in order to keep producing those goods, you need somebody to continually buy those goods and make not only... You want people, you want to, you want to encourage them by telling them they need things that they don't need. So in order to keep all, you know, to get your car, to get your house, to get your picket fence and all that, you have to work. Mm. And that's what the whole premise of schooling was, to keep you working, not thinking about what you're doing, just keep you working so that you can keep buying all these things that you don't need. That mass consumerism. So that was the big push there. And then I found, I thought 1965 was another instrumental year. Uh, They passed, it was the Johnson administration, they passed the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which is the first time where the federal government actually allotted funds to schools for psychological and psychiatric programs. So that's when we start getting into the whole pushing of... When did, uh, is this around when, uh, when did vaccines start, you know, other... Uh, not just being treated in the school, but you have certain required, you know, if your kid's going to attend public education. That's actually a good question. Because I don't, I don't think we had really covered that, but. No, we didn't. Of all of the, the requirements that are made of you to, to be able to put your kid in school. Oh, we'll have, we'll definitely do a vaccine podcast so we can, that I actually do not know. I know when I went to school and that was in the early 70s, you had to have your vaccines. Also, it sounds so, about. Um, maybe this a little bit after this time. Of course, we didn't have to have as many vaccines as you guys did. Do you know what the list is up to? No, not recently. Do you know what it was when we were in school? You had to have... You had to have the mumps, the measles, rubella. Um, honestly, I don't remember. I would think there were six or seven that were mandatory. Damn. Yeah. Well, that's great. No, it's gotten a lot more. <laughs> well, I'm sure in the it's last inc- couple of it years has, it's gotten Because when more. you were you were at the time with chicken pox, because we said no to your chicken pox vaccines. I said no to all of them for all you guys because I'm like, I survived the chicken pox. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think they need it, but I know you now have to have the chicken pox vaccine. But... Yeah, that's a very good question. I don't have the answer to that one. So now we have medical things being brought in alongside. So yeah. we're just adding more and more things to this this in, this amalgamation, this this institution. And like I told you, I was telling you about in, uh, was it 1969? It was in Hawaii. They called the Master Plan for Public Education in the state of Hawaii. It was when they actually first legally were able to use drugs in schools to enhance your learning. That's when ADHD started. Well, actually, ADHD is a newer invention. That was probably the 80s when they started really pushing that. But is that a, like going 
yeah, it's probably the origins of going to the doctor because you're having learning issues. Like go. What you're get not a paying attention in class you're when not the talk still. <laughs> still you're, you're... I mean, the teacher's talking to you all day, and you're not sitting still. Yeah. yeah, those kind of the things that need to be beaten out of you. Well, that was pretty much, it. and then I pretty much ended on. It was in 1979 when Carter actually created the cabinet of the U.S. Department of Education. And that is kind of the final, because up until now, the states pretty much, well, the states gradually were losing control. Well, it actually started with the communities, your very local levels, and then eventually the states moved in and took over control. And then by 1979, that was kind of the final, where the federal government was pretty much in control i mean the states still have some say here and there but it's the government who, or the federal no, government. no that's a that's a massive change and as gatto says there already is a national curriculum because i think people still talk about that of like oh should we have a national curriculum or, mm-hmm. or not but there are there already is the, the 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 education system is already centrally controlled by the federal government so yeah that's a that's a pretty big uh move there and yeah, so that's how we end up in a comp- modern compulsory schooling system. Uh, one thing I found interesting in the Ivan Illich book is talking about the idea of childhood just as it being a more modern uh, Western idea. And as you were saying, in societies of the past, uh, as ancient Greece, you were you know, you were growing up along with, uh, alongside your peers and the elders and in the community and growing up in that culture. And there's just this, this idea of childhood that I think feeds into why we accept that we lock kids away from society for 12 years, Mm -hmm. just shuffle them away, segregate them, lock them up, create, you know, this abstraction that they're just stuck in and then get a big slap in the face when they finally leave those institutions and step into reality. And, but do they ever really step in reality? Because uh, then you leave school where you might go to college. If you don't go to college, you're expected to have a job somewhere and then you get caught in that job. And and you have the abstractions of media and the, and the yeah, other things yeah. that we talk about. Yeah, I just I just thought that was interesting because I hadn't thought about it that way. And it's just like in our in our society, it's very excusable. Like, oh, he's a kid. Like, it's OK that he did that. And I'm not saying, you know, not to approach the, the child with forgiveness like any you would approach any other adult. But it's I just think at a young age, we're already setting up that idea of you're not responsible for your own actions. Mm-hmm. Depend on the institutions and the state to deal with the repercussions of your actions. Don't take responsibility for that yourself. Well, we discussed that. I think the whole education system has taken responsibility away from people because what happens? So the kids look to the teachers when they're doing something wrong. So the teachers don't know. So they look to the principal. And then so the principal looks to the superintendent. It's just a A never ending. ending Nobody ever. Looking up the chain. Nobody ever assumes real responsibility for their actions. There's a... A, uh, a thing Gatto talks about in the book, I'm pretty sure this is just a direct quote, and that's a community without children and old people mixing around in daily life has no future and no past. Having children and old people isolated from regular life creates an immense void, which is the rejection of community in favor of networks, which I want to talk about. Yeah, I want to do that right now. I want to talk a little bit about uh one of my favorite parts of the John Taylor Gatto Dumbing Us Down book uh, 
which I highly recommend. It's like a hundred pages. Uh, you read his uh, was it Underground History? Uh, yeah, the Underground History. So we read both of those books. They do sound like they cover different subject matters, and I really like his writing. It's in a very entertaining, uh, engaging way, and it's a quick, easy read. I highly recommend it. And one of my favorite things in that book was not even necessarily pertaining to the compulsory school system, although it is related because this is part of why the school system exists the way it does, and that is the destruction of community in favor of networks. And I found this so so good because the uh, for I think everybody you know it's a meme. It's a meme on the you know community's dead, community life is gone. Like a lot of people understand that. I had for a long time kind of intuitively grasped that not only was community dead, but there was there was something that replaced it. It wasn't that community just left. There was something that filled that void or kind of took the community out back, killed it, and then assumed its place. And what uh, Gatto puts the name to that is networks. And I just I really like this this whole idea he has with with networks versus communities. And one of the one of the key differences is with a community, first off, a community has a natural life cycle. It has a natural limit and it has a natural limit because a community is truly dealing with whole individuals. When you're operating in your community, you are your full authentic self. And that introduces some issues. You know, it introduces conflict. It introduces uh the subtleties of life of a true community, whereas a network, you really only are meeting together for one specific goal. And one of the greatest examples I can think of in my head of something I engage in is uh, the community bands I play in in a local area. I mean, community band is literally in the name, meaning we're made up of people in the local area. But that's not a community, that's a network. Because when I show up to rehearsal, we're all meeting there for the reason of sitting down and having 40 people create music together, which is a, which is an awesome experience. That's the goal of the network. But I do not go to that community band rehearsal and in my full authentic being and not, and neither are those other people there. They are you. And through a life of living in networks, you learn how to uh, separate these different parts of yourself and only give out that that one part of yourself that's needed for that one network's goal. And the networks are very mechanical and very measurable. They deal with units, uh, you know, as the, with school, it's the grading, it's the attendance number. It's all it's all of those types of things. And I just uh, I just uh, had not heard somebody place a name to this this new thing we are all living under of the term network over something of of the past like communities. Mm-hmm. Does that you, no? You I get the... I I understand what you're saying because actually that's a very good point and you could see it. I remember when I was growing up is uh, and I think a lot of it also has to do with the taking away because. I grew up in a in Batavia, New York, which is at that time was a small city, small town, and we had like the neighborhood kids. Yeah. And we all hung out. We didn't always get along, but we all hung out. You guys never had anything like that cuz kids don't play like that anymore. Either you make a play date to go over to a friend's house or but you don't hang out in groups and I think a part of what they have tried to take away is that sense of 
being a part of something, which I also think goes with the family unit and them trying to divide the family unit. I've always said that your strongest unit is your family, and they don't want you to have that because they know that. (laughs) They understand that that's a very strong unit. And I think when you look back at community, you always had your family. You knew families in your community. You know, on our street, we knew everybody, even though we didn't get along with everybody. You don't have that Yeah, anymore. those people were not just numbers. They were people who you yeah, knew. you knew. And you hung out or you didn't or you disagreed. Or, or if you knew if there was something wrong, you could go knock on the neighbor's door and ask for help. Or You just don't get that sense anymore. No. And... Uh... And as a result of of living in networks, you suffer alone. The network is is anonymous, and that also means the network can live on indefinitely because it's not dependent upon the the individuals living within it as a community is. Because if the individuals drop out in a community, the community dies. But a network will just keep on keep on growing. Mm-hmm. And he says, uh. uh a network like schooling is uh, particularly bad because it it uh it tries to convince you that it is community it tra- it's yes. it's he calls it like a i think he calls it a vampire network or yes, something he where talks about that not only are because like not all networks are are bad in that way like like my community bands for instance i don't that doesn't bother me that we all show up with the goal of sitting in 60 of us creating music to concert band music together like that's that is that's fine but the but to kill community and replace every all of life with these networks and what most people end up doing in in the modern world is in in trying to replace that lost community they end up just joining many 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 different networks but you can join as many networks as you want but it's never going to give you that that purpose or that wholeness yeah it's it, it's never going to reach there and i think that leads well into Man, uh, one of the just one of the things that annoys me when talking about education, and that's people saying, "Well, I'm going to put my, I'm going to send my kid to school because he needs to learn how to socialize. My kid needs to socialize." <laughs> I'm not going to lie, Jacob. There, when you when I when you were about to go into school, I seriously contemplated homeschooling you because I really I was kind of weird about it. I'm not going to lie. But there was your aunt, who was a teacher, who said you have to send him to school because he'll be weird if you don't send him to school. And she, you it, wouldn't want him to be weird. weird he yeah. needs to fit into marketable qualities so, so he can go into the economic world. And unfortunately, I listened to her, and it's something I regret wholeheartedly. I apologize to my children all the time for sending them to public school because I now know how awful it was. Well, I'm surprised you you did contemplate it back then because I was going to ask you in in an unawoken state. I imagine it was like it's just the norm to do. It was, but I did seriously contemplate at one point homeschooling you because and then when you did go to kindergarten, it was ironic because Oh, I can't remember what I was reading, but it, they said that when they start school, they change. And you did. You changed. You hated going to kindergarten. You'd come home crying. You'd have fits. Yeah, who likes school? And I felt, you know, and I felt bad. But at that time, I I didn't understand what was going Kids on. Kids just got to learn. He's got to figure it out. But and I yeah, I, there's two things that bug me with that. Um, the one is you are admitting to me when you say that, that you understand community's dead 
because you're saying, I understand the only way for my kid to socialize is to go put him in an institution. Mm -hmm. There is no other way that he's going to just be surrounded. Well, I'm sure there are other ways, but school is by far just the easy, you know, go drop the kid off and he'll be around other kids. But that's the other thing is you're, that kid is only going to be socializing around kids, kids of his exact yeah. same age. And we think of that as normal. And you're forced into a classroom with these same kids day in, day out, whether you like them or not. You know, and- yeah, which is one of my issues with school is it violates one of your fundamental rights of freedom of association Mm -hmm. and people have these discussions about bullying and whatnot without ever even bringing that up that in real life in reality your first solution to any problem is to walk away is to leave the situation and in school you are trained that you have to deal with it better get used to this Mm -hmm. kid because the rest of your life you're going to be stuck dealing with people and you know, obviously it's healthy to be able to deal with people who you don't like in certain occasions, but to be compulsorily forced to be not only just in the same vicinity, but within the same class, within the same small group, or when they break the class into smaller groups and you're forced to deal with with the other kids. Um, I, I hear that all. It's just, it's the thing that's said in my eyes of like, you know, what is the, re- you know, and as we were talking about what is education, I mean, if the first thing you're worrying about with your kid's education is him, is them socializing, yes, no, you've kind of missed the the point, the of, point of, of, it, yes. of education to mm-hmm. begin with, especially as, as I had just said of, you're not even talking about truly socializing with the community or with adults or with anybody. You're just talking about a, an arbitrary segregation based upon age, which that's the other thing with schooling is I think schooling is one of the best ways to just see the death of the imagination in people. Oh, yeah. The fact that us even discussing this of saying, man, maybe there's another way of educating kids than locking them away for 12 years in an abstraction. Uh, just this this isolated bubble. I think Ivan Ilchit, he called it the... Uh, the magical womb, uh, you know, it, it, like you're saying, of where these kids can be trained and can be brought up into the way that the state wants them to be. That's the only way. That's the only way that you could educate uh, your children. So I don't know. I just wanted to bring that up because I find I just hear it all the time. I'm sure you guys heard it because uh, towards the end, uh, my sisters were homeschooled. Mm-hmm. You, you homeschooled them. And uh, I don't think- everybody thought we were crazy. Well, yeah. Why would you do that? They might be weird. <laughs> um. So that you know the re. Why do we say that we need the the schooling? What are what's the ostensible reason for it existing? And like I said, the one I hear all the time is is socialization. Socialize your kid. Uh. But honestly, I find them to be pretty upfront with what the real purpose of education is or, you know, our modern form of compulsory schooling. And that is uh, job and societal status. Go to job or go to school, get good grades, get good job. Which isn't true. That's the funny thing about it. How many college graduates do you know? Because now you're at the age where most of your friends have graduated who have great jobs. Well, I I, uh, yeah. <laughs> I tell people all the time, I kind of uh, no. feel a little bad uh, going into the local grocery store and seeing all the kids that went through college and are now working at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. Not in any, uh, it just, it's just a, another reminder of that I, I, I made the right choice of, of not going to college, of avoiding that institution. And we'll talk about that later of how 
by not going to college that instantly invalidates you from having any being able to speak on anything. Uh, you know, Ivan Illich talks about that or Darren Allen talks about that of create. If you are to speak on anything, you must have gone and gotten a college degree in it to have any sort of authority or just not even try to be an authority, but just to express an idea, to express an opinion, to just speak on anything. You need a piece of paper with a couple letters after it to authenticate you into your, you know, your knowledge. I know it's ridiculous. So think about it. You have the whole the whole economic uh, bullcrap and. Then the uh, the other reason that, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic. Yeah, I'm going to share a story about this one because I think this is I people say if you don't go to school, you won't be educated. You you won't learn anything. When I took your youngest sister out of homeschool, she was in eighth grade, eighth grade. Yeah. And we were sitting down and she was doing an English lesson. She did not know the difference between a noun or a verb. That's not surprising. Eighth to me. grade. And I was like, oh my we actually literally had to restart and I had to teach her grammar. And I just that's crazy. <laughs> well, English class is a is one of the stronger ones of being able to see how ridiculous the the compulsory schooling curriculum is because my my example is is English eleven. Uh we did twelve years of English, but the twelfth year was I'm going to talk about I I went through an interesting period where a lot of a lot of my classes had just gone to Common Core. Mm-hmm. Um I think English they did all in one swoop, but I know for I know with math I was in I was at this perfect grade. Yeah, you were gradually yeah. where every single year I went to the next level of math, it was that teacher's first year of being forced to teach Common the Common Core, Core curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um uh, I was talking about English 11. So anyway, English 11 was the last year of Common Core English, and English was always a joke. Like you, you, uh, you never were learning, as you say, like basic. I I want to bring up the point that if you go read the first 20 pages of the Sister Marius Joseph book, uh, the Trivium, which is a book about language, that's what her main thing is about, and you will have a more comprehensive, holistic understanding of the purpose and function of language just by reading the first 20 pages of that book than you will have had in your whole 12 years of of English class. Mm -hmm. And I wish I was being hyper, but I really wish that was a good joke. um, When I went to college, I I did go to college, and I was always a very good reader, which I think is the thing that got me through. Because grammar, we were never taught grammar in elementary school, and that was back in the 70s, 80s. And I remember taking a history class, um, and the professor was one of the best professors I've ever had. He was really good. And it was uh, the American Revolution, and his thing was he was very strict about our writing, he was all over us about our writing, and it was taking that one semester of college where I actually learned how to write. I mean, I spent all those years in high school, and it took to take this one college course to actually learn how to write properly, yeah. to write well. And I thank him for that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I actually got something out of my educational system, <laughs> but it it just doesn't happen. and. People just do not know how to write, read, 
And how can you possibly communicate? How can you learn? I mean, how can no, you? No, uh, I'm going to talk about towards the end of that's what of uh, Sister Mary Joseph's main thing is uh, the trivium being the root of all education because communication requires the use of the whole trivium. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I want to just finish my uh, the English 11 thing real quick. Uh, well, there's two things to it. First off, the thing that drove me nuts in English class was that you never read something, formulated your own opinion on it, mm-hmm. and then wrote an essay arguing for your own opinion. With Common Core English, you were given a prompt and you were said, you were told, this is the interpretation of this text you have just read. Mm -hmm. This here is it. This is all there is to it. And you need to now go write an arbitrary length essay defending this position that is not even your position to begin with. Yeah. That drove me nuts. But anyway, I want to, the whole reason I had brought it up was, that class in particular, we did the first half of the year, and then I, I'll never forget this. The whole entire second half of the year, so hundred how, how many ever days that is, half the half of our school year was spent solely working towards taking the final the test, test of the year. Yeah. We did probably one of these tests a week, and she literally broke down, you know the the way that it's structured, you know, because there's multiple parts of a test. So it's like, which part is weighted? That's the word I'm looking for. Which part is weighted more than the other? Mm -hmm. And I will just never forget that. Uh, We spent this whole half of the year only learning how to take the test, which ended up being all right by me because I learned that the multiple choice was a very heavily weighted part. And I, uh, I, did the multiple choice, did the first essay, did not even do the second essay. And I got a 95 on it mm-hmm. because I because we had gone over so much how how this test is weighted and how like the second essay is worth nothing. So I remember getting to the end of that test and be like, well, why the hell am I going to do this? I know that it's weighted is not like we had. I, I, right, that's education is learning how is spending your whole year solely to, to take, take that tests. because that teacher was terrified because the teacher is graded and and uh, well, that's her how performance the get is great yeah yes if you well the don't, tax funding yeah, yeah it's the tax funding and the state funding and the federal funding is all based on these tests well anyway that oh, i will never forget uh Forget that, which was craziness. English 12 was better. That was not a common core class. And uh, I had I had two decent teachers in high school, both of which were older and retired within like two years after me leaving. One was for pig and economics and one was for English 12. I remember you liked your pig teacher. Yeah, she was good just because uh, first off, she was the only teacher's class who I could not bullcrap through because my whole thing... I was at a weird point in school. I, at that point, I had already known there was this media apparatus just spreading nothing but lies and propaganda. And I had yet to confront what that meant in terms of all of reality. You know, if that, if there's that system that exists, what does that mean for all of these other systems? I had yet to really think about that, but I knew things were up. And my way of dealing with high school was understanding how you were graded which was testing that was what they cared about so i would roll in test well and then do none of the homework i i just would refuse to 
take the state home with me, which is what homework does is, is bring the state home to your house and be expected to do that work outside of school. Like, you, you have my time here. I'm forced to be here. Do what you need to do here. I'm not going to I'm not going to be doing this work outside of it. And <laughs> a lot of the teachers were not uh, were not happy with me. I just I I can't think of a specific example, but. Man, I do not have a high uh, opinion of, of teachers in general. I, I had just a lot of interactions with teachers that I, they just were not. Oh, I remember the one interaction I had with your Spanish teacher, Mrs. Rivera, when you were failing out of Spanish. Yeah. And I sent her an email and I asked her, what can I do to help him? Well, it's your responsibility to figure that out, not mine. That was the email I got back from her. And after that, I said, you know what? He's going to fail. He's going to fail because <laughs> I've yeah, done what a, I can that do. That was a particularly rough class. Yes, I, was, I, know. I I wasn't really interested in. Um, but anyways, the uh, so that's the the ostensible reason, you know, you know, why we say compulsory schooling is required. Let's start getting in. I mean, we've been talking about it the whole time, but really diving into the true purpose of. As, as we, I, I had wanted to during the podcast say John Taylor Gatto because during the whole book he says every single time government monopoly compulsory schooling. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I want, uh, but I, I broke that. But um, as we said, there's a uh, there's a huge economic component, and part of that, is, as you've been talking to me about, is keeping workers out of the crammed labor market. Yes, that's why they extended the school. Uh, like they, you originally had to do up to eighth grade and then they moved it up to like 10th grade and they just uh, gradually kept expanding how long you stayed in school, how long the school year is. I mean, look at how hard it I've still amazes me because I remember when I was in high school, everybody got high school jobs. Yeah. Everybody did because you got out of high school, you went and you just worked for the summer somewhere and now you all struggle to get high. You have a job just because your uncle or we had the cleaning company, so you had worked that way. Beth could never find a high school job. And the only reason why Emily did was because she started homeschooling and she started working on the farm. Yeah, and there's all those uh, arbitrary w- rules of, of what, yes, you, of what, you, what can you can do. what you can do, how many hours you can, and it's just gotten worse and worse and worse. So, Because I, when I was in high school, you could work 40 hours a week over the summer and get overtime. Yeah, I don't do believe it, you can do it, that yeah. anymore. But even, I, even yeah, even during the summer. Summer, yeah. Not. But you can't do that. And um, I've lost. Oh, and they intentionally do that to keep kids out of the. They don't want kids working so that the older people can keep working, and we just keep training this generation to pretty much take over when those people retire. That that's all it is about expanding these. There's no reason why a kid has to spend 12 years, 13 years in school. Well, There's no uh, reason for it. Gatto ta- uh, calls bullcrap on that where he says, if, if you're specifically talking about just reading, writing, and arithmetic, what does he say? It's like 40 hours. Yes. If you if a kid wanted to learn, you could teach it, and then he can just be off to the races for the rest of his life continuing that, that process, which uh, that gives me just the real quick thought of, the the apathy of a lot of younger kids my age where schooling has destroyed any sense of ever wanting to educate yourself mm-hmm. 
which is really unfortunate because one of the things Gatto talks about is that um, the difference between the school system of the plebs, of the peasants, uh, you know, the, the poor class and the elite systems of education is that in the elite systems of education, they promote self-reliance and self-knowledge. And they say that self-knowledge is the basis, is the true basis of not of, of knowledge mm-hmm. is, is that self-experience and that self-knowledge. And they also go through the exact opposite of what happens in compulsory school where they are left by and large in a lot of isolated situations to where the example he gives is, hey, kid, you need to go get on that horse and ride that horse. I'm going to leave you to figure that out. You might get hurt doing it. You're going to figure it out. You know, Something is you're going to need to try. You're going to need to figure something out. And imagine what that kid feels like after he has successfully done that on his own. Mm-hmm. He's self-empowered. He has gained that self-knowledge of how to do that. And he will carry that confidence forward for the rest of their life. Whereas in compulsory schooling, it's the exact opposite. You are not to be trusted. You are, you know, you're a little, uh, you're a little troublemaker. You have to be watched at all time. You have you can't no even privacy. Go to the bathroom <laughs> yep. during class. You know those kind of things. Yes, and things like that. Uh, Gatto talks about as being used to appeal to the authority figure. You are reliant upon your relationship with that person who is in charge of you at that at that time and moment. Which preps you for the workforce. Yeah, being ready for the boss. Yeah, and. Uh, it, it creates a lot of of pressures and anxiety about that that crammed marketplace that you're going into. It just uh, it creates a lot of artificial anxiety, largely because in in compulsory education, every little step you have upwards, you're rewarded. But if you ever fall, you're punished for it. And Darren Allen talks about that implanting deeply into the psyche of the student to fear uncertainty. Yeah. To fear failure. Yeah. And when you fear uncertainty and you feel and you fear failure, all of a sudden you're not going to try new things. You're not going to experiment. You're not you're not going you're going to kill your imagination because you're like, well, I might as well just stick with what we're doing. I'm going to stick with the norm because if I try something new, there's there's a risk of failure there. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting. Uh schooling uh also really messes with communication between people it uh there's two ways about it as i said earlier it creates the situation where if you're a normal person just trying to communicate to another person a lot of people will say well what are your credentials to speak on said subject but then you also have the the academic milieus where you you purposely use language that a lot of the time means exactly what common words that a common person would use but you have your own professional academic milieu to kind of to keep people out from engaging in that like you want you need to basically go through that curriculum to have an even a an understanding of these words that they're that they're using uh which obfuscation is it's actually interesting you say that because one of the books i was reading which i told you about was the closing of the american mind by alan bloom and I told you, I said, it's actually a really hard book to read. And I consider myself a really good reader. And even I struggled with this book because he's definitely an academic who has spent his whole life in academia. And I just felt like he was trying to convey ideas, but he wasn't doing it a good job to, if he really wanted to 
express what he was saying to the masses, he definitely would have done a much better job at writing this book because it was just so... He... I mean, he used, he compares a lot of philosophers. So if you haven't read all the philosophers, which I haven't, some of them I have, but not all of them, you know, you really don't know where I was looking up what this philosopher was into or what that philosopher, he just made it very difficult. And I find it interesting that you say that because he might not even have intentionally been doing he that. He may not have. He's just lived in a life of academia. academia and that's just how he sees it. But well, you got to have something for all these intellectuals to do all day. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> uh, and I'm his gonna, ideas aren't even all that. Uh, some of his ideas were already. Yeah, you were saying it was kind of a hit or miss, miss yeah. a hit or miss thing. Um, one of the things we've talked a lot about preparing for the economic world after school, and a lot of that is based upon teaching the kids uh, marketable tasks. Uh, as Darren Allen says, it's managing large quantities of useless data, mm-hmm. being able to to deal with, manage that, get your Excel spreadsheets going, most of which uh, is going to just all be completely unnecessary record keeping that you're going to give to the government solely so that they can tax you and exploit you for money. Uh, repeating the same tasks over and over again, doing things you don't actually want to do under t- ex- under a severe time pressure for no better reason than someone in authority telling you, you know, hey, you need to get it done by this time. Mm-hmm. You know, these completely arbitrary uh, situations. Because yes, if you don't in. get done in this time period, <gasps> the world will fall <laughs> apart. <laughs> yes. Um, and uh, any any level of self knowledge, self confidence, peace of mind, spontaneity, sensitivity, autonomy are existential threats of the highest order that school needs to exterminate. School needs to stamp these out. These are the kids that are quote unquote troubled kids. A lot of the troubled kids are not kids who are even uh, doing anything wrong. There are a lot of the times just the kids that cannot be dealt with by the teacher. Mm-hmm. And Gatto describes this uh, in his book, talking about how a lot of kids will rebel in education, but they don't. A lot of the kids don't even know what they're rebelling against. They mm-hmm. they do not have a. It's just not a conscious thing they're aware of, but they they know they don't like it. They know this is a bad experience, but they they cannot. They're not at the point where they can. Uh, intelligently formulate that opinion or consciously understand what they're rebelling against in a, in a certain way. So, yeah, um, I don't think we've brought up this point yet, but schooling is the institution to prepare you for institutional dependency of all the other, all the other institutions. institutions. Yep. As I say, of, of stripping you of the self-autonomy. It's creating you as a peasant who's ready to accept all of those institutional aids. It is the perfect tool to indoctrinate you into authority. Yeah. It teaches you that all of your desires and instincts are invalid Mm -hmm. and that your only meaningful pursuits are that of... Pleasing the authority. (laughs) Pleasing authority and market-friendly activities. Um, uh, Darren Allen brought up a good point that the hidden curriculum of schooling is not so much what is taught in school or how it is taught in school. It is the experience of attending school, mm-hmm. which I thought that was a, a really powerful point. Um, and this is what it was kind of funny because I was doing a ton of research on this. I was just getting things ready for the show last night and uh, I came across 
just some uh, YouTuber reacting to a, a Vice thing on education. And they were doing exactly what Darren Allen talks about, where it's okay to question what's being taught, how it's being taught, but never, ever question the reason for you even being there at all. Mm-hmm. Never, And it's the same thing with government, for instance. You can talk, you can or, or corporations, you can talk about this person or that person, but never, ever, ever question the legitimacy of it as a whole at all. Because that that is stepping that's stepping outside yeah. into places you don't want to be. It's interesting you say that. I there's a podcast or not a podcaster, a YouTuber I watch. It's Knowing Better. I have mixed feelings about him, but he he, he does do some good um good sh- videos with I- good information in them. He did do one on education. I actually tried to find it to rewatch it. And I couldn't find it, but I distinctly remember at the end because he himself was a former social studies teacher. And at the end, like, he was giving all kinds of good information. And then he started going off about homeschoolers, how homeschooling is wrong. And (laughs) I just found it so interesting. He just did this whole video, like our video, talking about the school system and how some things need to be changed in that. And yet when it came to homeschooling, he just shut down. Like, well, I imagine he's been through many uh, lectures. If he was a teacher, yeah, of, he, yeah you could definitely of, tell that was. This that is why teaching is superior to to homeschooling. I just found that fa- like he just bashed homeschoolers. Oh, they're all because, of course, when you say, "Oh, your kids are homeschooled," they immediately think you're religious, right? Which we yeah. are not, never have been. And I, I think it's getting far. It, it's starting to, especially with the whole COVID and people actually taking their kids out of school, that's kind of going away a little bit. But that's still a big, oh, well, you must be religious. You're one of those religious people if you're homeschooling mm-hmm. your kids. Because they're actually the ones who started it was the the religious right. But Well, him going off about homeschooling, it, it's not surprising because I imagine a lot of these teachers are are taught and the result of our current school system is that is that of social engineering that there is one right way there is a best way to educate and i am i that's where i i mean i get mind we've talked we talked about mind control on and the media podcast just uh you know teachers going into teaching going into teaching and and i don't know how they it just never I mean, it clearly did with with John Taylor Gatto, but just how for many of them, it just never, they don't see what the true purpose of it is. They, well, we have a teacher in our life, and I really believe that your aunt thinks she's doing good. Oh, I imagine most you teachers know, do. do. They believe that they're doing good, but they're not, They <laughs> don't think that they're, because uh, there's many implications with it. They don't think, for one, they, they are immoral for receiving payment by the extortion of other the threat yes. of violence upon other people People's through taxation, uh, which there's a lot of occupations that are like that. But that right off the bat to one reason that that I would never be a teacher just off of just understanding you're benefiting off of the labor of others. Um, yeah, I, uh, Darren Allen, he talked about how, yeah, there, there's good teachers, but uh, he made this good point that. Those good teachers are a minority and being in a democratic institution, if you are the minority, you are inherently under threat. Yes. Because with with democracy, it is just violence through the through the majority. Mm -hmm. But that's really 
the point of schooling is to be a centrally controlled social engineering uh, process for the youth using a national curriculum um, to just prepare you for that plate for your place in the pyramid. You know, don't go outside of of what you're taught to be and told to be and what and what you are limited to be through uh, through the education system because you're not promoted to become your own individual self, live your authentic life. You're constantly suppressing your your uh, your basic desires and urges and being told uh, how to act and how to be all the time. Uh, I don't. We haven't talked about it too much, but the the destruction of the family unit of. Well, I guess we talked about a little bit the the taking away of the kids from the household, uh, separating them for hours upon hours upon hours of the day, and uh, God. That's always one of my biggest complaints about your school day. You you guys actually had a very long school day, and you went in, you left the house what seven thirty eight o'clock, and you weren't home till four o'clock. I mean, that's that I've actually always complained about that school day because I don't remember going, especially elementary school. Well, I don't know if it well, I, elementary might be different, but I with high school, I know Burgeon had one of the one of the lower uh, ranked school days oh. of the of the area. Mm-hmm. Um, for football, for instance, we would go over to another school that we were playing with and. We would get there. We would get out of school, drive over to that school, and they would they would not even have been out of class. So there was other schools that were still like another half hour, hour. But I think those were also there's like the two structures of it. There's the structure of I think blocks. I think it's called where mm-hmm. uh, I think they're just like they're two classes where it's like they alternate. So uh, you where I went uh, I went through school where you did every single thing every every day. Yeah, you uh, went four forty-five minutes. Yeah, forty-five. Yeah, that's how. I but went. a lot of schools now do blocks where I think it's like ninety minutes, so you double that time, but you do it every other day. Yeah. So that's just a an interesting way of, of them splitting it up now. And uh, we were talking about the dependency upon the other institutions that school creates for you. And Darren Allen termed a coined a term for it, or I don't know if he made it, but functional illiteracy. Mm-hmm. I liked that term of describing a person who. Well, that's what Isabel. She that's her whole. That's the whole premise behind her book. When you read it, which has a lot of information, a lot of documentation in it, but that's her whole premise is that they intentionally are dumbing you down. That they are just mm-hmm. making you so you can go out in the world and function, but cannot go beyond that. Yeah. And uh, I think that leads nicely into I want to talk about one of the bigger parts of the uh, the Gatto book, and that is the uh, the seven lessons he teaches. And uh, yeah, it's seven lessons he teaches. And uh, I, I liked uh, his framing of these. The first one, I'll, I'll go through each of them and then I could just run through a list of them completely. It, the first one is, is confusion. It is that everything in school is taught out of context. Nothing is connected to each other. There is no coherence. You kind of just naturally assume there's a coherence, especially with the the younger grades, uh, like kindergarten, first grade, etc. You kind of just assume, well, there's got to be some 
method behind this. And I know as an, uh, as a kid in high school, you kind of, well, I'm being forced to be here all day. Well, there, there better be some plan. There better be some strategy. There's some reason everybody's telling me I need to be here. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that is just based off assumption. And when you really, especially now, uh, self-educating myself and reading and, and looking at different resources, you really, that really helps you grasp just how disconnected, all of these little facts and tidbits you were thrown at you were nothing was ever brought into a into the organic hole which uh sister Marieth joseph she she says that she says uh just merely collecting bits of information cannot be called education the part that is education is taking those bits of information and bringing yes, them certainly. together and bringing them into the hole mm -hmm. so the first one is uh is is confusion because school violates the natural sequences uh that you see through life school disconnects you from the the natural he he talks about natural sequences of of life and death and and mature you know growing up in maturity and in these these natural uh cycles that you see throughout life where well think about it you you're in a grade and you're in that that grade for this period of time and then when you're done with that period of time, you move up to the next grade. And at the same time, you're with the same people that, especially in a smaller school like you went to, you know all the people in your school. You never, and you don't really develop good relationships with them because you're, I think, because you're all miserable. You're all forced to be <laughs> well, in this yeah. classroom together and nobody wants to be there. And there's and no particularly the uh, the age thing is weird to me, especially since I don't know how other people's schools are, but not all things are completely age segregated. So all of your main classes are, but gym class has just everybody thrown in it. Now, see, when I went to school, you went, you were in the, your grade, like you were seven. Maybe grade it's because we were a smaller yeah, school, it could be but yeah, but that creates weirdness because you you spend most of your school day isolated to this one age group, but then during lunch and during uh, gym class and during some study halls and things like that, you're just thrown in with everybody else, anyways. And it, it it's just a weird. The age thing's weird. It, it, I don't. It makes no other sense than a social engineer sitting down and saying this is the most effective well, is, limiting way that we can bring that, kids up. Before that, you had the one room schoolhouse, and yeah. that Gatto actually talks about that. That you know, you had the older kids helping teach the younger kids, and the teacher was just kind of there to help out. It wasn't. And that teacher wanted to teach you how to teach yourself exactly. because they had a bunch yes. of kids, kids they were there, dealing yes. with and they wanted you to be able to be self-reliant and to to continue learning and on your own. And most of the time, by the time you got into your teens, you were you left anyways yeah, because you had, you had learned what you do. could. You were working for your, you know, on the family farm or doing what you had to do. But, you know, then you actually, it was the self-reliance thing. You were learning, you were what did you say? You had said, uh, was it Benjamin Franklin? He was like 12 years old. Yeah, he was like 12. Uh, he was super young and he, uh, I think he started his own business or he was working, he was working as an apprentice for his brother in a printing press when he was like 12, 10. Yeah, learn, really uh, young. learning in reality. Carnegie was the same way. Carnegie, he started working very young. I don't know the exact age, which I always find it interesting that he was one of those who started really young and became a millionaire and then did the foundations. But anyways. <laughs> well, that's. Uh... Well, I even showed you that um, I forwarded you that eighth grade test from 1912. 
Oh, yeah. There were questions in there I didn't even know the answer to. Yeah, like, Gatto oh. talks about that of, uh, especially, he used the example of math. You take an eighth grade math test from like the 1850s or whatnot, and it's a college level, it's mm-hmm. college level math. Because he says there's no reason for the 12 years other than arbitrary. Somebody somewhere must have decided that's how long it takes in to Germany, break a slave. somewhere yeah. in their universities. <laughs> yeah, because other than that, he, th- there's no reason for it to take that long Mm -hmm. but then you're also you also have the issue where you're stuck with your curriculum and the curriculum is very limiting for instance your history classes are limited to are tied with everything else your math class you're at this one set level for everything Mm -hmm. and you have to go up year by year you can never progress as you go in certain things um i was just thinking of the age thing again uh because i remember I got kicked out of advanced math, um, which just meant that they, I took the exact same math class. I just was no longer with the kids in my grade. I was with the older kids. And I remember that uh, being a weird thing of, of, it was the same class. It was just being, there was, I don't know how to. Because you're, you're seeing these other kids in the hall, you're interacting with them in their, in these separate ways, but there's something, uh, I can't think of a different word other than intimate about that specific class group that you're stuck in and to to be with those other kids. It's just weird. All right. Anyways, I had talked about uh, we did number one confusion um, Two, kind of uh, along the lines of what we were saying is class position. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to a small enough school to where I did not get hit with the number. Uh, we were a small enough school to where you had a name. Uh, but I know my cousin, he, uh, both of my cousins went to a school where they're large enough to where you're getting hit with that number. Like you are a number because there are just so many kids in, in some of these schools that in, at such a, you know, such a crazy ratio of teacher to students that there's no other there's no way for this teacher to ever uh, become familiar with you to person, you know, to be uh, to personally get to know you you're just going to be a number to them and uh, the other thing with class position he talks about is that complete arbitrariness not only of being stuck in the same group of aged kids but of who they pick to be in the you know uh, in high school you you still have like the first class in the morning and that kind of uh, affects the other class you'll probably have similar class uh, classes with the same people or when you're in uh when you're in elementary or middle school, you have your homeroom where you're still you're pretty much only with like one teacher most of the time. Mm-hmm. And all of that is, you know, every year it's just a crapshoot of, oh, who am I going to be? Who's going to be in my homeroom? Who mm-hmm. am I going to be stuck with? Who's going to be the people that I'm going to just arbitrarily have to be around most of the year? Um, which, again, it, school just prepares you to be content with that in the working world. And uh, then you also have the whole thing of advanced classes and dumb classes and uh you know you teach kids to to envy the higher classes and to fear the lower classes um i actually remember when i was because i was in all the advanced classes in uh, mid middle school and high school but the thing was is in our i remember quite distinctly that our school was very class segregated. I mean, you knew who the rich kids were. You knew who the poor kids were. And I was considered a poor kid, but I was in all the advanced classes where all the rich kids were. 
And that was very awkward for me. It was a real struggle because I didn't really... There was one other, maybe one or two other girls that were in those advanced classes with me that were in my class, and mm-hmm. you just didn't talk to the other kids. It was very odd. It was a very awkward experience. I did not enjoy my high school <laughs> years at all. <laughs> but That sounds uh, a long... Uh, I'll also talk about uh, eight pathologies he describes of the of the schools, like what is the result of all this stuff we're talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll talk, we'll talk about that in a second. There was this, uh, Socrates quote he used that, uh, that I like talking along the lines of class position. And it is the lesson of numbered classes is that everyone has a proper place in the pyramid and that there is no way out of your class except by number magic. It's all arbitrary. No. It's just what you're stuck with. Um, so that was the uh, the second lesson, class position. The third lesson that he uh, teaches is indifference. You teach kids not to care too much about anything because nothing is worth completing. As soon as you know you try to get the kid engaged, you try to get them involved, you try to get them going. What happens as soon as they get going? Bell rings. Put everything down. Nothing's worth finishing. Move on to the next class. Mm-hmm. Get out of here. You got uh, what is he? It's like 130 seconds. You better get there now, or you're going to be punished for it. Get moving. That is kind of crazy when you think about it. <laughs> I remember the changing of the bell and mm-hmm. panicking if you weren't going to make it to class in time or not. And that, uh, and our school was a lot bigger than yours. Yeah, mm-hmm. I. Uh, it's just it's reminding me of this point. Actually, I'm going to do both of these right now because I I have recently gone back uh, to my high school uh, playing pit in the uh, musical. And it was actually uh, it was kind of uh, good for this podcast, just uh, being reminded one of uh, how much of a prison it is, <laughs> which uh, was also something that occurred during my time there. Uh, I vividly remember coming up through high school, and then it wasn't until my senior year that because uh, because of school shooting, in between bells, every single classroom door had to be locked. Yeah. Um, which in our school, uh, it used to, it was pretty nice to where if I had a study hall, I could go to the band room or you could go to another location like that. And that made all of that a hell of just trying to get around every door you're trying to open is locked. Um, it's just a prison like that. And the other, the other thing that was new that wasn't there when I was in school, but I just went back there, uh, very recently and, you would walk in and there was two sets of doors. So there's this very little kind of entryway and there used to be a door to your left there that you would just walk right into the school Mm -hmm. office, fill your name out on a piece of paper. This is who I am. I'm here to do this. You know, I'm a visitor of the school. I need to go, I need to just go get this uh, musical book from the band director or whatnot. And now you go in there and there to the left where that door used to be is a concrete wall with four inch thick bulletproof get glass mm-hmm. with a lady uh, muffled speaking to you uh, through a microphone <laughs> and you're required to scan your license. I don't know if she did. It took her quite a while. So I, I think they might've done some kind of check background check, whatever, or if it was just, she was printing out my license and making a copy of it. Um, so it's just, that was a pretty big eye opener of just uh so how, it's how much it's progressed mm-hmm. even in just the the short amount of time that I've been out of it. And the other thing I wanted to bring up of having gone to school recently was all of the analog clocks have been replaced. 
And it's not just in the high school I go to because some of the other community bands, they practice in schools. I noticed that, yeah. When all of the analog clocks are out. They're all digital. In the classroom, they do not go down to the second, but in the hallway they do. So we, I was just, I, it had reminded me because we were talking about the bells ringing. So now when the bell rings, you can go into the hallway and you know down to the second, second when, you <laughs> when you're going to be yeah. late. That's crazy. <laughs> there, there is no guesstimating. Mm-hmm. You know exactly when you're going to be late. Um, but he talks a lot about bells. Bells destroy the understanding of the past and the future, rendering all time as the same. Um, nothing's worth finishing. You might as well not even try. You might as well not even get involved in something because you're never going to finish it. And not only just with the bell ringing and you put everything down and move to the next class, but a lot of things in school just are never finished. You start a lot of projects that just never have you a conclusion. run out of time yeah. or you don't have enough time. Yep. Uh, so that was number three indifference. I'll try to get through these, but I think these are important. These are him explaining what he actually does as a teacher from himself reflecting upon, you know, what am I actually doing here all day when I claim to be teaching? Uh, the next one he talks about is emotional dependencies. Mm -hmm. And this is the, the stars, the red checks, the smiles, the frowns, the prizes, the honors, the disgraces, um, you teach children that your emotional value comes down from the chain of command and the person who who is there in charge of you. Yeah, I remember when your sister I don't did you ever get the card? Because Elizabeth got the card. Because she card? was an honor student. So she got the the pass or whatever, so she could go to the library during her I think stu- maybe one year I had. Yeah, yeah. i I thought it I remember at the time thinking, Oh, that's cool. And now I think, oh my God. <laughs> I cannot believe. Here's my card of <laughs> Here's privilege. Here's my card of privilege. Oh, which, I had good uh, grades, so which I other could do kids this. will resent you yeah. for. Yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of sad. I'm sorry I was in that mind frame. Oh well. But uh, emotional dependency, rights and privileges can be given or taken away by the school authority at any time. You do not have any rights in school. Which well, you uh, don't really have rights outside of school either. Because think well, about it, if you yeah. don't show up to school and you don't have a legitimate reason. Yeah, you know, you're in trouble. Your parents are in trouble. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things I cringe at the most is there's tons of videos of you know, especially nowadays, people going to their their school board meetings and complaining to the you know the authorities on high about what's being taught in school or how it's being taught, or a lot of it is you know about the the modern day uh, political bullcrap going on, and it just irks me hearing them like they'll get up there and say, my right is a parent and they're your right as a parent is to take them out, out of, school, of the yeah. public. Like you should inherently understand when you put your child into that school, you have no, con- you going and complaining about it will have no effect upon this institution. You are forfeiting your child over to the state because you're either you just want it to be a daycare or or whatever your thought process is. You're saying, here's my kid. You're responsible for them. You are in complete control of what happens between this six hour window of time. And I think those, those kind of people going there and complaining and talking about rights without understanding what their real rights are is the, is part of the reason why we live in a world now to where if you go into public and even start talking about your rights as a human being a lot of people will smirk at you or smile or 
you're mocked for it of even discussing your your hu- your fundamental human rights that should not be infringed upon because school teaches you that those rights are given to you uh as we were talking about with emotional dependency your rights are not inherent to you by god or the universe or creation no, the, the government the authority authority yeah. gives you those rights so if you want those rights you need to go complain to authority rather than taking action into your own hands mm-hmm. and, and actually exerting your real rights that you really possess in reality uh he emotional he talks about how like you were saying with the bathroom of uh you know, a lot of the times he knows a kid is not going to go to the bathroom, but he lets them go because he he want he's teaching them like I'm I'm your person. I am the one who controls when you come and go from here. So piss me off and I, you know, things will change real quickly. So mm-hmm. so go along and get along and do as I say. Um, and very similar to emotional dependency is number five, uh, intellectual dependency. You are reliant upon. Uh, what the authority is uh, teaching you. And this is, uh, real quickly, one of the issues I have, uh, having not gone to college, is uh, I don't understand, especially in the information age, the the complete misunderstanding. If you do not go to college, you're giving up and you cannot properly learn anything. (laughs) That is the mentality. Mm -hmm. And it confuses the hell out of me because... The way I see it is you go to college and if I'm misunderstanding this, it with most classes, you are operating out of a textbook. So you have this one textbook and this one professor who are you you are learning this broad, you know, uh, a college class is usually a pretty detailed uh, thing on a specific yeah, subject. subject yeah. And for some reason, that is better than me being able to, one, if I really wanted to, I could just straight up download that guy's textbook. Not only could I download that guy's textbook, but I could download all of his peers' textbooks based mm-hmm. upon the same subject matter. And that's if I even want the institutional interpretation of said subject, because otherwise I can also just look up that subject on the internet and look through 50 different sources all talking about the same thing that this one professor is talking to you about. And I don't know, that just confuses me as to how well, I, th- there's also your, I remember when I went to college and I was at the tail end of it where a college degree actually mattered. It no longer matters. If you're under the, you know, illusion that if you graduate from college now and your degree means anything, it doesn't. And it didn't for me either, but there was a time, especially like when our grand, my mother went to college. Well, my mother didn't go to college, but that whole time frame, you graduated from college, you were guaranteed a job, and it was a good job. Mm. That's no longer the case. It hasn't been for decades. But the other thing is, is also when I w- when I first went to college, I had just gotten my first computer. I had just the internet was yeah. just coming online. Like we did not have the resources that you guys have open to you today. If I wanted to read a, you know, my college curriculum, you had to go down to the bookstore and buy the books. You could not download them somewhere, or which you was, couldn't even purchase them. Some you had to go to the bookstore. You weren't yeah, gonna get which them was anywhere. one of the things of college in the past is they had the books, they had the information. they had they that controlled you could the go, information. That you could go see, but you know, so yeah, college is very irrelevant nowadays. It it's not necessary unless you want to become maybe a nurse or a doctor or something. If you want to pursue that, but yeah, for whatever it, reason. for whatever <laughs> reasons, but you know, just to go, I 
I don't know one child your age that has graduated that is using their degree. I don't have never used my degree. Yeah. You know, and um I don't know. It's just it's something I have a chip on my shoulder about because people are rude about it. They are. And, and it, it, it's just, yeah. it makes no sense. It just That's why it, it we have no never sense. encouraged you guys. It's not like if you if you wanted to go to college, we wouldn't say no, but we made it quite clear there's really no reason to go unless there is something you wanted to pursue that you actually needed to go and learn. Yeah. But I don't honestly at this day and age, there's nothing that if you wanted to learn, you could not discover on your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they uh, they made the mistake of telling me that we lived within the information age. And why would I go pay all that money for information when we live in the information <laughs> age? You have information access to it 24 hours a day, um, seven days a week. Which I think is part of the uh, the lack of holding information as valuable now, especially with young people, is it is so accessible that I think a lot of it, when something is that accessible, a lot of people... They, they just take don't it engage in it. Yeah, yeah they don't, they they don't appreciate yeah. how much. And I is there. actually appreciate it because I enjoy having the access to books now that I never would have had before. I'm reading. I like you. I'm educating myself now. I mean, it took me fifty years to figure it out, but I'm learning more now than I ever did in college. It's yeah, which an, is empowering. It is very empowering. Versus if you're in school. The successful student does as they are asked, and the successful student who does as they are asked with as little resistance as possible. Do what you're told, and don't give me any pushback for it. Don't be curious. Don't push the boundaries. You are there to conform. You're there to do what the system requires you to do, uh, and and, and just be dependent upon the person telling you what to do, and not having that self-agency to structure your own learning to just do your own thing so that's the intellectual dependency um and number six is provisional self-esteem self-esteem can be given to you or taken away at you at any point in time from the from the authority figure uh that and this is like things through report cards that that your that your self-respect and is based upon something as stupid as, as, grade, as the grades yeah. you receive. And I I actually remember growing up, your grandmother was very strict about grades. And I was always a straight-A student. I'm not going to... But your aunt was not. She struggled in school. And, and it mm-hmm. wasn't that she wasn't intelligent. She just wasn't a... You know, I was one who could sit there and listen and do what I was told and that. She just wasn't. And that was always a point of contention in our house. You know, well, why can't you be like Amy? Why can't you get straight A's? Why can't you do this? Yeah. I don't think I've ever done that to you guys. I never really. Oh, you you sure as hell didn't care when I was <laughs> barely passing <laughs> high school. So, well, because by that point, I yeah, we all knew what was going we, we on, and was I was just on. ready to be done with it. Especially sent because a lot of it hinges upon oh, well, if you're going to college. You know, you need the good yeah, grades. Yeah, by then to, you to knew get. you so didn't want like, to go to college. It and... doesn't really matter. And on like, you you will graduate high school just by showing up. Mm-hmm. There is like how many kids I knew that should not have graduated who did nothing, but I uh, that but uh, that's another thing where uh, the school funding comes from is the graduation rate. Mm-hmm. And with something like my school, a small school, it's something ridiculous. It's like it's over 99 percent. I'm pretty sure there's really only like one kid, if even that, that 
that drops out. I think some of the times they do just hit 100% graduation rate because it's not about uh, showing what you've learned. It's just about that you've been there. You did what you were told. You were obedient. You showed up and uh, were subservient. Um, But the idea that the casual judgment of a stranger should affect your personal value and self-esteem Man, that is a a destructive uh, thing to be teaching kids. And uh, it goes against, I mean, almost every major philosophical system, self-evaluation and discovery of the self is one of the most important parts of it. And school completely obliterates that through things like report cards, grades, tests. Uh, Don't trust yourself. Rely on the evaluation of others. The certified officials, they know what they're doing. You don't know what you're doing. Just listen. Listen to what they tell you. So uh, lastly, number seven, one can't hide. Uh, this We talked about this a little bit. You have no rights. You have no privacy. You have no private space. You have no private time. Classes change quickly to reduce interactions. Uh, students are encouraged to snitch on parents. Parents are encouraged to snitch on students. Students are encouraged to snitch on students. <laughs> Yeah, and a family that's trained to snitch on each other is uh, isn't likely to be holding, you know, concealing any anything from the state in that in that regard. And uh, the it also exists to reduce the amount of we talked about at the very beginning the unauthorized learning that you might take away from a parent. You know, don't um, don't be bringing that into school. You're you're here to learn from us. You're not here to uh, to absorb from your own culture, from your own parents. Well, they've stripped culture. Yep. There's, I mean, I know that people talk about the American culture, but there really is no such thing anymore. Mm-hmm. That uh, privacy is not uh, legitimate, and that no, and it's basically preparing you to live in today's world. Yeah, we, you'll be watched all the time. You will be watched all the time. And uh, as I had talked about with uh, what he regards as an elite system of education that's the exact opposite kids are left to have uh private time and that's one thing he talks about when you have no private time you don't develop your own private values and when you don't develop your own private values you don't become an individual and if you don't become an individual freedom means nothing Mm -hmm. um so it's the washing out of all that but those are the seven uh lessons i'm gonna just run through them real quick in order so one was confusion two class position Three, indifference. Four, emotional dependency. Five, intellectual dependency. Six, provisional self-esteem. And seven, one can't hide. So I liked that. I thought that was a very honest uh, portrayal of what a teacher actually does, whereas you know what a teacher thinks they're doing of... <laughs> Darren Allen is like, a teacher thinks that they are the... Uh, you know the purveyor of knowledge, dropping little knowledge pebbles into the <laughs> into the kids uh, into the kids' mind. Um, when in reality, they're they're doing uh, the exact opposite. Um, so where do you want to go from here? We we have some more some more things we can talk about in terms of. Uh, well, I, I had just talked a little bit about some of the the ways they do it some of the some of the how is we were discussing the why's but i'm pretty i think we've we've pretty much covered, we've pretty much yeah. got that covered obedience the general incompetence self-alienation permanent childishness 
Uh, meaningful activity is only in a market-friendly career path. Fear of uncertainty. Postpone. Training you to be the ideal citizen. Yep. Whatever that means. Whatever that means. Um, this one, this I see this one a lot in kids my age, and that's the indifference and apathy towards life. Uh, I, I think agree. That is a result of being in an abstraction for most of your childhood, which is just something not real. It's something artificial. And I think that's a big uh, part of people taking no action in the world. You know, even people that do understand the control systems of the world, uh, how many of those people that even do understand that are not making a podcast like that? They are just doing their reading. They're just continuing learning, but they're not actually... Uh, taking that step of wisdom and really going all the way and and taking action, like real actual action in the world against the slavery that you are put under. Mm -hmm. Because you might as well just leave it all in fairyland. You know, it's easy to intellectually think about these things, but when you actually bring them into reality, you have to really care enough to do that. And I, a lot of that comes from from the apathy and just the lack of care and just the indifference. Which, in some uh, in some kids, they they even pride themselves in. That's a you know, I well, I'm just tuned out of everything. I don't care about anything. I'm gonna do my own thing. Blah 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 blah. Um, this was a interesting point Gatto made of that. I just liked how he framed it. And he's like, children learn what they live. Mm -hmm. So when they live in that abstraction, when they live in this artificial womb, as uh, Ivan Illich calls it. Uh, that's the that's what they're gonna learn. That's how they're gonna live. Um, yeah, just block. Well, it. maybe we should look or start discussing then what you can do. Yeah. What you know? What kind of change can you make if you are really truly? You want to make a change if you want to make a difference. And you know, we had discussed learning the trivium, which I would like to learn. I still haven't. Really, I know of it, which if you don't know what the trivium is, it's grammar, rhetoric, and logic. Yeah. It's uh, the three primary. And then it goes in the quadrivian, which is what astronomy, music, geometry, and... I want to, uh, more. before we go into kind of real education and real healing in that way, mm -hmm. I do want to quickly talk briefly about the what he calls the eight path uh Gatto calls the eight oh, pathologies yes, of yeah. children i mainly just want to bring this up because i think this could be uh some of the most the best part to help people heal that ha are listening to this that are like me that are like you that that went through an institutionalized education and i part of the reason i think this naturally went in uh after uh, mass media is because both of these things messed you up you're messed up. <laughs> like we all are, we are messed up. These things affect everybody. And uh, so I just, I just want to read some of these off. The first one is the children are indifferent to the adult world, which defies the experience of thousands of years as uh, that was kind of linked with apathy. It's just kids of the past. Like you were saying in ancient Greece, like they want, they want to be doing what the adults are doing. They're interested in what the adults are doing. They're interested in that real life into the work life and, and, and well, being even productive. as late as like, or is the like American Revolution that that time period? Mm. Kids were they were all literate. 
they were working, they were functional human beings, they had a purpose, and you don't have the you didn't have the issues back then that you have today with them. But which I think is largely because we uh, we separate children from the yes, uh, we started the compulsory education. Well, we separate them and we separate them from the responsibility of their actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, the children have almost no curiosity and the little they do have is transitory. Mm-hmm. You're not going to you. It's hard to even get the curiosity going. And once you do, it shifts to the new thing. You you don't have a lot of focus. And this is also hurt by uh, technology. He talks a lot about uh, TV in the uh, in the in the dumbiness down book. Um because he says, like, people your age, you were you went into that same abstraction, but you got out of school. And as you were saying, you were now in real life again mm-hmm. and, you, and you went and did your thing. Whereas kids nowadays, uh, you are in that abstraction of school. You leave and it used to be television, but now it's probably more like the uh, TikTok, social media, Instagram, uh, Reddit, all those kind of things that you're just doom scrolling on. So you never leave the abstraction. You never actually step into reality and are, and are living an authentic life. Uh, three, the children have a poor sense of the future and how tomorrow is linked with today. And this is the idea of building upon things, of slowly growing and working, uh, like these podcasts of of reading the books, going through the process of preparing the notes and coming and accumulating those things over time into uh creating something to really bringing something into reality um and that's also you know talking about history of just how uh kids are not really taught about how history affects their current reality that they live in like that for the children are well okay so i i kind of jumped a little bit the children are ahistorical they have no sense of how the past has affected their present you know you know that being interested in a lot of the in a lot of history mm. books of just how much do people uh, understand or, or or think about those things at all? They don't. Well, that that's because the educational system is completely. Not only do they eliminate things like history and English, but they alter it. Come, yeah. You know, it's. Yeah, they. Uh, well, school. We talked about with media how you just repeat something and make it the truth. The truth. School and, is how you do that as yes, well. You just through repeat, textbooks, yeah. and I mean when you. Like the the interesting fact I told you about, there's only three published or three cities that publish all the children's books in the United States: Boston, <laughs> New York, and Philadelphia. Three cities, <laughs> yeah, they're all in the East. That's an interesting one. Uh, five. The children I teach are cruel to each other. They lack compassion for misfortune. Laugh at weakness. They have contempt for people who express their need for help too plainly. You can't be seen as weak. Uh, the contempt is is one a lot. And that's, we talked about the whole socializing thing. I mean, being stuck with a bunch of kids of your same age and peer group. I all mean, the time. Yeah. Like it, it it just creates these bad, uh, these bad uh, tendencies in the kid. Six, the children are uneasy with intimacy or candor, a life a lifelong habit of keeping a secret inner self within a larger outer self composed of behavior borrowed from television or acquired to manipulate others creates a person who cannot deal with genuine intimacy. And this is one of those ones that I read and was like, damn, that one uh, describes me pretty well, as you're saying, of being stuck and surrounded in a peer group or with a no privacy, with no, no uh, yeah. with no abil- uh, ability to be yourself without being 
judged and having contempt expressed towards you and being pulled down. It really does. And I think this does for a lot of people, this, uh, this issue with true intimacy, because you have this outer self that you use, as I was saying, with the like the networks, like that would be the outer self that you would pull bits and pieces from to engage with the networks, but you're never actually exposing yourself and having a true intimate connection uh, with that that inner person, that real self. Um, Nor do you have the time to really reflect on who your real self no, is. Because there's no private there's time. There's no private time. Um, so the... And as you're having genuine intimacy with somebody, you start to break past that outer self, which is why you can't allow yourself to have that uh, genuine intimacy. Seven, the children are materialistic, following school teachers who materialistically grade everything mm -hmm. and the television that has everything for sale. Uh, materialism, something I've struggled with overcoming of just the, the connection with things, with objects, with just meaningless bullcrap that you're designed to consume. Ivan Illich talks a lot in his one about creating the consumer the the limitless consumption mm -hmm. as a result of schooling yep. the children are dependent passive and timid in the face of challenges this timidness typically masked by surface bravado anger aggressiveness uh, beneath is a vacuum without fortitude um, that one also hit me hard reading it because not only is that true for me but i i, I see it in a lot of people that i interact with of in the face of new challenges you have not been built up to the point where you can handle them and there's just this vacuum inside yeah. and you fear that uncertainty and as he says you know you can you can mask it by a surface bravado anger aggressiveness but in reality you're just in this utter free fall so the timidness in the face of new challenges i think that's a, a pretty vital a pretty vital one oh, i'm glad you read those actually that makes no, I uh, I think those were some of the best ones that I hope, uh, as I said, I hope some people can uh, listen to those kind of things, understand what the institution was that they went through, and can use that to uh, to begin uh, healing themselves. Uh, so you want what do you you want to go into the trivium next or because I I think sure. we've talked about yeah I think we pretty much talked everything else yeah I, um for, for college one thing is uh. You go to college or you be alone. Um, I just watched a video on that. Uh, and it's very true. And I think colleges are fully well aware of, of what happens on their campus. That's something they sell the kids of come to school. You will have co-ed dorms. You'll have, uh, you know, we can provide you an experience. Because as uh, just with the parents saying, well, I need to send my kid to the institution for them to socialize. You understand that once you go out into the ocean of life, there's going to be nothing. You're going to be alone because there is no community. So you can go to college and uh, which, again, is a network like a lot of those people you will meet in college, especially if you're traveling there for, uh, at a distance are not going to be people who are you are typically going to cherish and remember after the college experience is over. They're going to be people who you just were coincidentally dormed with or, or whatever the situation is. Uh, so I, just well, I think you should also point out one of the real sole purposes of college is no longer to educate you, but to to make you a debt slave. Did, yeah, it, pro it postpones you from the yes. labor market, and when you do enter the labor market, you have a massive You're debt in collar debt. Yes. that you need. The only way to solve it is to lifelong work. To keep work. working. So it just keeps you enslaved. And uh, 
Ivan Illich talked quite a bit about universities. He talked about some, like you were saying, of the old university. You would go there because they had the books Mm -hmm. and you could read there. And he was saying like a true university would be something more like you were saying, like the dialogues of Plato, where you read a book and you look around for somebody else who's read that book. And then you just have a conversation on that book. It would be anarchic. Mm -hmm. It would be free flowing. There would be little structure to it. You would not, as I said, in the English class, you know, you're not given a prompt. You're not given an idea to defend. You're just having an open free flowing. It's okay to disagree. Yeah, (laughs) that's one of the arts of education or I think of education is learning how to disagree and take the information that you have obtained and discern it for yourself, and then you can yeah argue. see what you do agree on, see what you don't, you don't agree, agree on. on yeah, so. um, but things like that can't happen in college because you need to be observed. You need to be within the system. You can't just be freely exchanging ideas like that uh, in your own unique way. Um, I also find it fascinating. Ask any kid after they graduate high school if they enjoyed it or if they liked it, and th- if they're being honest with you, they will probably tell you no. And it's just interesting to me how 90% of those kids that said that, or honestly, like all of them that said that to me went to college, College, Um, which I think it not being required is one of the aspects of college because they want to gradually indoctrinate you. And that's what graduation is, is proving yourself as a slave who can do as you're told and can you can go out and be relatively free to move around and do as you do because you have been trained to the point where you will have expected behavior. As John Taylor Gatto says, uh, school is an instrument to scientifically control the population. So they know when you graduate school, you will be a person that they expect you to be. And that's why most of most people will then voluntarily institutionalize themselves. It's not even mandated anymore, but they will they will go and do that anyways. Because as you're saying, you know, the job guarantee, that's something Ivan Illich talks about of you go to college because you have a supposed guarantee uh uh, paycheck, you know, like the, uh, and I mean, they still do that to this day. When you go, one of the things they tell you is, oh, well, this career makes this averages mm-hmm. this much money, and this career averages this much money, so you might want to do this career and not that career. It's all bullcrap. Um, I, I think that's all, all we really got to say about college. Um, yeah, maybe sometime in the future we'll do a more in depth. Well, uh, college is going. We're going to talk about. The trivia man college will be referenced in future things, especially as we talk about the oil-based Western medicine institutions <laughs> and yeah. um, the trivium will be referenced over and over again because it's a vital part of um, it is the staple of what a true liberal education is. Um, I had read the uh, the beginning of the trivium book. I, I'm going to read more of it because it's an awesome book, but I decided to focus more on the compulsory schooling aspect. Um, but yeah, let's run through, uh, the trivium real quick. So there, uh, a person like Mark Passio or Jan Irving will teach it in several different ways. Uh, they'll, uh, they'll teach it in, uh, knowledge or knowledge being the first step, understanding, and then wisdom, um, knowledge being the accumulation of information, bringing things in an eclectic range of sources, Understanding is then the filtering of that knowledge. You stand under it. You come to an understanding. And then once you come to an understanding, you then take action upon what you know, which I think is the real – I like that esoteric kind of definition of wisdom is not – 
a lot of people would not associate wisdom with action, but mm -hmm. that is like the true esoteric understanding of wisdom is acting upon what you know. That saying of to know and not to do is not to know. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's a, a awesome way of thinking about it. Um, but that there's three there's three different ways to to explain the same thing. So knowledge, understanding, wisdom, uh, the classical way and the way uh, Sister Miriam Joseph talks about it is grammar, logic, rhetoric. So that's the uh, the more classical way. And then in a modern computer type way that is really useful for just helping to understand the process of it, it would be input, processing, output. So just three different That's ways. That's a good way to put it. Though. Yeah. It it just that one just helps you really understand what each mm -hmm. step is doing. Now, one thing with Sister Miriam Joseph that I found interesting is she teaches it in a different order. She teaches it as logic, grammar, rhetoric, mm -hmm. rather than grammar, logic, rhetoric. Yeah. And I see how they're both right. Uh, I think when she's so she's approaching all of this very much from language, language and communication and education. Um, and I think when Jan Irving and Mark Pastio are talking about it, they are talking about it in that more kind of holistic life sense. But you're also talking about how all of life is education. Anyways, it seems to me the main distinction is that she's kind of assuming that you're already starting to use the trivium already on a piece of information you're taking in. So whereas... They would say the first step, knowledge, is the information you're taking in. I think she's kind of already taking that as a basic assumption that without doing, like, why would you be using the trivium if you're not trying to communicate on some information you already know? Yeah. So the first thing she says is logic, which would be coming up with the thought of what you're reading or what you're, of what you're taking in, the information you're taking in. You come to a, a logical thought upon it. And then grammar is quite literally the symbols you create to then express that thought. So you come up with the thought through logic and then you use grammar to actually create the symbols. And then you use those symbols to express your rhetoric, to actually speak it, to act it out in the world. So I like both ways yeah. of, of, of seeing it. Um, and she talk, uh, she talks about these uh, norms or like what the the goal of each of these is. Whereas logic, logic's norm goal is is truth. It is coming to, it is bringing your mind and brain into alignment with reality as it is, discerning the truth, coming to an understanding of reality. With grammar, the norm is correctness. You want to correctly symbolize what you're trying to represent through thought. And then rhetoric is the effectiveness. It is altering your communication to the person you are trying to communicate to to have an effective transition of that thought. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's the trivium, the three. Uh, and then, as you were saying, the quadrivium. And the quadrivium uh, is arithmetic, music, geometry, and astronomy. And the difference between these is that the trivium are the liberal arts that pertain to mind and the quadrivium are the liberal arts that pertain to matter. But these are all liberal arts. They're the seven liberal arts. Uh, but as a, the trivium is specifically related to mind and the quadrivium is specifically related to matter. And I also like that I, I believe she was the first one to introduce me to this concept of grouping the two together 
or other people have grouped them together. Uh, let me explain. Arithmetic is the theory of number. Music is the application of the theory of number. They're related. But not only are they related, she labels them as discrete number or quantity, um, which that part I don't fully understand. Uh, so she says those two are discrete number quantity, and then the other two are continuous quantity or number of, of continuously expansion and expression. And that would be geometry, the theory of space, and astronomy, the application of the theory of space. Those also aren't the only ones, uh, like music can re be replaced with algebra and other other expressions of the theory of number. Um, so there's there, there's more different types of them. But uh, again, just the order she has it, logic, the art of thinking, grammar, the art of creating and combining symbols to express thought, rhetoric, the art of communicating thought from one mind to another. And I think I had told you a little bit about this. She talks about fine arts and utilitarian arts. Um, she says the seven fine arts being architecture, instrumental music, sculpture, painting, literature, the drama and dance. And then a utilitarian art. There's a ton of them. It would be like carpentry, masonry, plumbing, printing, banking, law, mm -hmm. medicine, like these a utilitarian art is typically a sold skill. You you sell it uh, as a commodity to, for someone to purchase. Now, the difference between the fine arts and the utilitarian arts is that the seven liberal arts are intransitive. You're familiar with like the transitive verb or an intransitive mm -hmm. verb. So with the liberal, with the seven liberal arts. They are. They never leave the agent. Mm -hmm. They are working upon the self, whereas the seven fine arts and the utilitarian arts are transitive, meaning that they affect an object. They start at the agent and they end in the object. And she gives a good example of the carpenter planes the wood, which would be agent to object. Mm -hmm. That would be a utilitarian art. And then the rose blooms. So that would be a... Uh, intransitive because it is not you know it stays it mm -hmm. starts in the agent ends in the agent so i thought that was a good uh distinction between them um and we're not gonna go the trivium could be a whole thing i'm not i wasn't gonna go too far into it i just want to wrap up a few other points she talks about this uh this thought that i really like and that is the liberal arts are both a science and an art. And she uses science to say there is something to know. So a science is something to know. And an art is there is something to do. Mm -hmm. So a utilitarian art would be an art because you are planing wood. You are doing something. You are acting on the material world. And I had, I had talked about it in the... Uh, in the uh, earlier in the show, and that's just that the trivium is the root of all education because it is all used in the process of communication. And how else are you going to teach somebody, learn from somebody, or communicate with somebody without the trivium? Uh, communication is always involved in that process. And she talks a little bit just about. Uh, Communi communication when 
when two minds share something in common, they possess something in common, when both people are cooperating and actively engaged. Um, so not only would, in her, by her definition, would say the compulsory school system is not true education, because as I said earlier, she uh, she says the mere aggregation of information alone is not an education, but the but bringing it into a hole through the trivium, but also that uh, communication takes place when two people are actively engaged. And I'd say in a lot of situations, that ain't happening compulsory no. schooling. The student is not actively engaged. They're not encouraged to actively engage. No, not at all. Um, so, it's interesting you say that because that, when you were saying that, all I could think of was community. Community, yeah. That would be the basis of Something community. Something in common, yeah. a shared, yeah. Um, and I think that's, uh, I think that's pretty much it for, for what I would talk about with the trivium. As I said, that could be a whole other, a whole other thing. Um, I liked this, uh, this quote by her. The function of the trivium is the training of the mind for the study of matter and spirit, which together constitute the sum of reality. So again, uh, compulsory education completely leaves out spirit or anything other than just the material world. So I'm, again, by her definition, would consider compulsory schooling to not be in, uh, in actual education. And it, uh, I was, I was uh, pretty shocked learning about the trivium uh, a little while ago just because, like, what do you think of when you talk about a liberal arts education now? Like, that's a, that's a yeah, mock you're thing. Thinking, oh, you're taking anthropology and you're taking mm -hmm. history and you're taking a math course here or there. Yeah, it's... Not that you're learning how yeah, to learn. Yeah. I, my first degree, my associate's degree is a liberal arts diploma. Yeah. And Do you learn the trivium? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. But, uh... Nope, the trivium's cool. And again, that's equipping the self for, you know, self-knowledge and self-discovery, just getting you going, getting the confidence going. And uh, I think that's about all I have to say. My voice is about to give out here. Yeah. The only thing I wanted to point out is um, homeschooling. Because I, I did want to make the point that even when I took my daughters out and we were homeschooling, you still had some control by the state because you had to meet a curriculum. Yep. I didn't realize it until my youngest was actually in her last year of uh, her curriculum that you can actually do what's called unschooling, which now that I wish I could have done that route, which is where you don't actually follow the curriculum, you just have, but you still have to go to the state and say, okay, this is what I plan on doing. But it's not their curriculum, which is also an option. But just so you know, even when you homeschool, you're still influenced by the state because you still have to send in report cards every quarter. You have to show that they're, you know, they're doing the work. So it's not when you say homeschooling, it's not a lot of people associate, oh, well, it's the parent just teaching the kid then whatever they want. And that is actually not what it is. It should be. Yeah. <laughs> it should be more like that. So just so, you know, I wanted to make that point. But other than that. I actually, I, I have a, I have a, just a couple of quick things, um, mainly from, uh, from the Ivan Illich book. Um, one idea is that with school training you to value measured experience, people will avoid something that cannot be measured. They will they will let unmeasured experience uh, slip through their hands 
because that becomes secondary because it has no value to you into the measured judge society. Mm-hmm. Thought that was a good point. Another thought that he compares it to uh, religion and church a lot, mm-hmm. which I think makes absolute sense. Uh, you know, in America, the whole blah, 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 you know, in, uh, religious freedom. But there sure as hell ain't any educational freedom. So that's an interesting contradiction there. Um, but he talks about uh, powerful churches having a threefold function in society, um, one being the repository of society's myths, the institutionalization of that society of that myths contradictions, and then the place of ritual that veils the disparities between myth and reality. Mm-hmm. So I think that was a cool three step explanation of the church and religion, but what school does yeah. of being the repository for myth ingraining that myth into you and then having ritual that that fogs the 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 myth and reality and kind of brings them together so i thought that was just a really good thought and he also had another good point that or just i just liked how he said it was our attempts to withdraw from the concept of school will reveal to us our pervasive assumption that others can be manipulated for their own good a belief that man can do what God cannot manipulate others for their own salvation. <laughs> I thought that was a <laughs> yeah. That actually sounds like Bernays a little. <laughs> I thought that was a yeah. fun, uh, fun quote. Um, and lastly, I just wanted to talk. You know, we were talking about homeschooling. Um, I really liked one night at a, I think it was a family dinner when Padre, my father, he he had just said to everybody. You know, I think they were just mocking us about homeschooling or something like that. And he just said to them, as soon as we were all, I think I had just graduated and the girls had just started being homeschooled. And he was telling them how when that happened, the drama and the issues and the when the state left the house, things just instantly. Yeah. And it's hard to even really describe how that how exactly that happened. But it really did just uh, because you didn't have to wake everybody up in the morning. So not everybody was already in a bed. Because yeah. think about how many mornings I had to fight with you guys to get you out of bed and get you out the door onto the school mm-hmm. bus. That alone causes stress. That starts your whole day. And then you come home and there's projects and there's homework and there's this and there's that. And the grades and the report yeah. cards. And... I mean, when we took the girls out of school, they started reading more. They started doing the things they enjoyed doing more. They had time. They're, you know... What they actually were required to do through school maybe took two to three hours a day tops. And then they had the rest of the day free where they could do the things they wanted to do. And Which in reality is what it would probably take most people to do in a day's school. Yeah, It's just you're constantly held to the class. Uh, History was a big one for me where it was just it was simple, easy to understand. But you're going to sit in class the next week. Being the stuck same with the same yes. lesson because yeah. the other kids have yet to figure it out. So um, I just thought that was a I, I just I remember that to this day because it was just such a, a good way of saying it of as soon as the state left. Because we've talked a lot about uh, the of being in what it's like being in school, but school also comes home with you mm-hmm. and the state comes home yes. with you. You have your homework and just. The sporting events, the sporting events, the stra- and just, the activities. And... Yeah, it's just uh, a bunch of stress. Uh, I didn't talk to you about it. Let's just talk about it right now. I had 
I was thinking of doing the Federal Reserve and money for the next episode. Oh, that's fine. I Yeah, I had suggested that. I think that would be a good one. That will tie in well with the whole economical. And then we, you know, we can also lightly touch on bullshit jobs, which because mm-hmm. uh, we've talked a lot about today of, of preparing the person for the uh, the ec- the social economic norms of, of the world that they're going to be launched into. So I think that I think doing the Federal Reserve and the money supply would be a good. Yeah, because, th- yes, they uh, inadvertently linked to the education system. It's yeah, how else are you going to believe in money? Exactly. The kids come out of the womb believing in money. Yeah. So that's a good start. We can do that one. All right. Uh, I'll have a book list at freedomforlifepodcast.com. Uh, you can download the episodes there. The podcast will also be available, should be available pretty much wherever uh, you get your podcasts from. Uh, again, you can go to the uh, freedomforlifepodcast.com and get uh download the podcast look at the uh the book references of of everything we talked about today and uh yeah so that was episode two all right what uh what are we calling this one i thought you had the name uh i'm trying to remember it it's uh mass well they'll have already seen it i think it's the new prison education education indoctrination. indoctrination yep all right